Well, howdy. All right. Hey, it's uh, great to be back at Community of Faith for the second week in a row. I always love uh, the opportunity to be here. I want to start out this morning by telling you that when I was in high school, I ran cross country and track. And I would imagine that's going to surprise many people in here because you look at me and you have me pegged as a linebacker. But no, I actually, I was a runner. And uh, the reason that I ran was because uh, I kind of hit my athletic peak in elementary school and lost all hand-eye coordination. And so running allowed me to just put one foot in front of the other as fast as I could, and I could handle that. Uh, but races were always on Saturday mornings, and uh, I had a dad that was just extremely supportive. So he made it to every single race, and he always videotaped my races. And I could always tell where he was on the course because... My dad is Middle Eastern, so anytime I passed him, I would hear, go, Timothy, go, go, go. And, uh, and uh, the camera would just shake profusely. He was so excited, which was awesome. But uh, my brother and I had a routine that uh, Saturday afternoons we would go home and we would hook the video camera up to the TV. That was back in the days when you had actual tapes. You put in your video camera and cords that went to the TV, we would hook up the camera to the TV and we would watch our races. And uh, I will never forget this one particular Saturday, we're sitting there watching one of our races and we think that we see something happen, but it happened so quickly that we weren't sure that what we saw happen actually happened. We weren't sure that that was the case and so we had to rewind it and put it in slow motion and sure enough, uh, we saw what we thought that we had seen. And uh, I'd show you the video, but you'd have to see me in extremely short shorts. You would never recover from that, all right? And so I'm just going to tell you what you, would, what you would see. And you're going to hear this, and you're going to be like, that is really anticlimactic. That's not a big deal at all. But it captivated us in the moment. So here's what you would see. You would see about 300 high school guys on a starting line. The gun goes off. And all 300 guys take off at, a, at an all-out sprint down this field. And the, the group of runners runs around the baseball backstop, and then they start heading back down the field towards the camera. And as all of these runners are heading back towards the camera, we put it in slow motion, and here's what we see. We see a runner who's in the top 10. So this is one of the people who is, who is leading the race practically winning the race. And in this moment in time, as they're running back towards the camera, we put it in slow motion, and we see this one guy in a moment in time just simply step off the course and, and walk away. It was, like, it, it was like three minutes into the race, he wakes up and realizes, I chose the wrong sport. I paid money to wake up at five something in the morning to just take laps around a field. And I'm getting gypped. And I'm out. He stepped off the course and walked away. And, and it was interesting because it wasn't like he stepped off and grabbed his hamstring. He didn't put his hands over his head like he needed to throw up. No, he just stepped off the course and, and walked away. And as I thought about that video, my thought was, I wonder what his reason was for stepping out of the race. And the reason that I bring that up is because uh, when you read the Bible, you will see that the Christian life is 
often referred to as a race. And the reality is, is that many people in their journey with Jesus, many people reach a point where they simply step off the course and walk away from Jesus either temporarily or permanently. And I would imagine that you know some people who have done that. I mean, I think about one of my best friends in high school. In high school, he was all about Jesus, and then he went off to college, and he stepped off the course and walked away from Jesus. And to my knowledge, he's never come back. I think about a girl who was in the student ministry that I led in Austin, who while in high school, it it at least appeared that she had a faith. And if you were to look at her Facebook profile today, she would identify herself as an atheist. I think about a man who uh, was married, had a daughter in high school, and just reached a moment where he left his wife, left the church, and to my knowledge has never come back. I would imagine that you have people in your own lives who have stepped off the course and walked away. And I think about those people who I know who have done that, and my thought is kind of similar. I wonder what their reason was for walking away from Jesus. What I want to do this morning is I want to show you what I believe are three of the top reasons that people step off the course and walk away from Jesus. We find it in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, I think we're going to see three of the top reasons that people step off the course and walk away from Jesus. And the reason that I believe that you need to be familiar with these three reasons is because inevitably you are going to come to these intersections in your life that are awkward and uncomfortable and at times painful. And when you come to these intersections, you're going to be prompted to answer the same question that Jesus' friends had to answer in John chapter 6. You're going to have to make a choice whether or not you're going to step off the course and walk away from Jesus. So if you have a Bible, join me this morning in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and as you get there, go ahead and find verse 66. Just to set this up for you, at the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus holds the largest impromptu barbecue in the history of mankind. He feeds 5,000 plus men and women with uh, the contents of a little kid's Spider-Man lunchbox. The next day, he gives a sermon to the people who had eaten that meal. And I would argue it is by far, hands down, Jesus' most unpopular sermon. And the reason I would say that is because of the response to his message that we find in verse 66. Here's what it says. It says, after this, that's after his sermon, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Commentators, some commentators say that in this moment, after this message, so many people stepped off the course and walked away from Jesus that that there weren't many more people left besides Jesus' 12 friends, the 12 disciples. So imagine this, as multitudes leave Jesus, Jesus finds himself in this moment with his 12 friends, and he looks at them, and he, he prompts them to answer a question, and here it is, verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, don't miss it, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? This is a very 
very crucial question this morning because what you need to realize is that Jesus didn't just intend for his 12 friends to answer this question. He intends for you to answer this question because inevitably you will come to these intersections that are awkward, uncomfortable, and painful, and you will have to make a decision in your life. So here's what I want to do now. I want to kind of rewind in John chapter 6, and I want to pinpoint what I believe are three of the main reasons that these people stepped off the course and walked away from Jesus. People walk away from Jesus today for the same reasons that they walked away from him 2,000 years ago. So let's let's look at it. Um, Turn back with me to verse 25. The first reason that people will step off the course and walk away from Jesus either temporarily or permanently is because Jesus won't give them what they think they need most. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Verse 25, it's going to feel like we're, gonna, we're kind of starting a movie halfway through, but I'll, I'll read this to you and then I'll fill in the gaps. It says this, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So just to kind of fill in the details for you, Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people with a fish and bread combo meal, and the text is very clear. It says that the people ate their fill. And the reason that that's so important is because Jesus is dealing with a lot of people who wouldn't know where their next meal is going to come from. And so just imagine that there's people in the crowd who are going to sleep that night with the feeling of being full. It's a feeling that they haven't, they haven't had in a long time. So as those people go to sleep, Jesus, without them knowing, makes his way to the other side of the sea. The next morning, these people wake up and have a brilliant thought because they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They begin to think, I wonder what Jesus is thinking about doing for breakfast. And so they go looking for Jesus and they go to a lot of effort to track him down. And when they track Jesus down, Jesus calls them out on their intentions and their motives. He says, guys, let's just Let's just be real with each other. The reason that you've gone to all this trouble to track me down is not because you saw me do something ridiculously cool with the little kid's lunchbox. No, the reason you've gone to all this trouble is because you're hoping that I hook you up with another combo meal. And they don't argue. They don't argue with him. These people believe that their greatest need was more food. They believed that their greatest need was physical food. They believed that the greatest thing that Jesus could give them was more bread. And what Jesus does is he sees past the hunger of their stomach to the hunger of their soul. And he's trying to get them to trade up in their thinking. That's why he says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So what Jesus is talking about is not a physical food, but a spiritual food. But these people believe that he's just telling them about a greater bread that they've never experienced. 
They believe he's telling them about a bread that never gets old or stale or moldy. And so just imagine, here's these people who believe that their greatest need is bread. And they track Jesus down and Jesus seems to have this better bread. So this is going to be a really good day. Here they are saying, thinking, my greatest need is bread. Jesus, you have a bread that never gets old, never gets stale, never gets moldy. Jesus, if you have that bread, go ahead and give it to us because we want it. Imagine the disappointment. Imagine the frustration when Jesus says this in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Can you imagine the disappointment in that moment? Man, we're going to get another free meal. Dinner was great last night, but I'm more of a breakfast guy. So Jesus, whatever you've got, I'm up for it. And Jesus is like, man, I've got something so good for you. This is food that will never wear out. It's so good. You know what it is? It's me. Imagine the frustration when they believe that their greatest need is bread and all Jesus offers them is himself. And so some of the people step up the course and walk away. Let me just ask you this. What do you believe that your greatest need is? Like fill in this blank for me. If I could just what? If I could just fill in the blank, then I would be happy then I would be satisfied. What, it is, what is it for you? If I could just get a job, if I could just get a better job, if I could just make more money, if I could just get a spouse, if I could just get a better spouse, what is it for you? <laughs> Fill in the blank. What is it for you? What do you believe that you need most? Here's what I want you to know. Jesus cares deeply about your needs. He is very well acquainted with your needs. But you need to know that Jesus believes your greatest need is him. And so there's going to be times in your life where you believe that your greatest need is a job or a better job or a spouse or a better spouse or more money. And all Jesus is going to offer you is himself. And in that moment, you're going to be prompted to answer a question do you want to go away as well? I'll tell you when the disappointment and the frustration can be really thick. It's when you feel as if you've done everything right. Think about a vending machine. You have to have the right combination to get what you want. Well, there's times where we can kind of act like God is some cosmic-sized vending machine, and we can feel like we're getting the combination of life just right. We're, we're reading our Bibles, we're coming to church, we're giving money to the church, we're serving the church, we're conducting ourselves with character and integrity at work, we're doing the right things, we're avoiding the wrong things. Man, it can be a tough day when you feel like you're getting the combination of life right, and all Jesus drops down is himself. I remember one of my closest friends in high school went to college and in a, and in a period of a year, in a period of one year, his roommate was killed in a plane crash. He had multiple extended family members die in the same week. He was involved in a serious boating accident and he was diagnosed with cancer all within the same year as a college student. 
And as he was just kind of telling me about his journey, he told me, he just said, man, I reached a point in my life where I just told God, you throw whatever you want to throw my way and I'll show you I can handle it on my own. What was he saying? He's saying, what's the point? Apparently, there's no combination to get right because I, I was doing things right and you didn't drop down what I wanted, which was a life that was a little bit more easy than this. What's the point? And maybe that's where, you're on, where you are this morning. You're in a moment where all it feels like Jesus is doing is dropping down himself, and it's frustrating, it's disappointing. And so you're left with a question. Do you want to go away as well? It's the first reason that people step off the course and walk away from Jesus. is because Jesus doesn't give them what they think they need most. The second reason that people step off the course and walk away from Jesus is because they just can't get on board with all of Jesus' claims. Look back at the text. Look back at verse 35. Jesus says this. I'll read it again. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here's what you need to know. Every single person in this room has a soul that's hungry for something whether it's love, acceptance, approval, significance, accomplishment, pleasure, peace. We all have a soul that's hungry for something. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. I'm it. He says, I am the bread of life. He doesn't say, I'm a slice of the bread of life. No, he's saying, I'm the whole loaf. I am the whole entire loaf. I like to refer to Jesus as as the Walmart of life. And if you can't get on board with Walmart, he's the super target of life. If you think about going to Walmart, man, in one trip to Walmart, you can get a tire for your car, dinner for tonight, and a pair of YD tidies, just in the same trip. <laughs> because Walmart is kind of the one-stop shop for anything you need in life. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. He's saying, I'm not just your source of eternal life. I'm the source of all life, emotional life, uh, relational life, spiritual life, physical life. I am it. And then he goes on and says this. Verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is Jesus claiming to be divine. I don't know if you caught it, but he's saying, I have a special relationship with God the Father. A relationship like no one else has. And I've actually been sent by him from heaven to earth. So we as humans are here on earth and we aim to go up there. Jesus is saying, I came where you want to go. I came from where you want to go. You aim to go up there. I came from up there and it is my mission to come here and take you up there. I have a special relationship with the Father. And the task he has given me is to come here and raise people up. What he's talking about is God has given him the mission of raising people to spiritual life. So Jesus is saying, 
You might be physically alive, but spiritually dead, and I can make you alive. So that's a pretty cool deal. That could be your story leaving here this morning. You could leave here and people could be like, how was church? And you could say, well, it was actually pretty good. I went into church dead this morning and I left alive. So I'd say it's a pretty good morning. That's Jesus's mission. And then he goes on in verse 40 and says this, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is simply saying, if you want to experience eternal life with God in heaven when you die, it's going to have everything to do with me. Period. Now watch how the people respond. Verse 41, it says this, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Do you see it? They cannot get on board with all of Jesus' claims, so they step off the course and walk away. You're going to come to these moments where you're going to be confronted with some of Jesus' claims, and you're going to have to really wrestle through them. A while back, I was sitting on my couch. I was watching The Voice, and The Voice was ending, and I was doing some work, and and uh, the pilot for this new show came on, and so I just found myself watching it. It's a show that... Uh, you might be watching these days, it's a show called The Good Place. It's with Kristen Bell. I've only seen the pilot, so I don't know whether it's a good show or a bad show uh, in terms of whether it's enjoyable to watch. I've, I've only seen the pilot, but if you don't know anything about the show, he, here's the premise. There's this, there's this girl who finds herself in the, in the afterlife. And uh, basically, she finds herself in the good place, but there's been a glitch in the system that she actually didn't deserve to go to the good place. She was supposed to go to the bad place, but because of a glitch, she's in the good place. And so she needs to figure out how to be a good person so that she doesn't get kicked out of the good place and sent to the bad place. And at least in the pilot episode, I found this so interesting. I mean, it was such a great description of our world today. She is sitting there with the architect, the person who's kind of in charge of the good place. And she says, okay, who got it right? And he said, well, no one got it right. Buddhists, Hindus, Jews, Christians, all got about 5% right. And then as they continue talking, it really becomes clear that it doesn't really matter who got it right. What it really came down to was how much positive energy you put into the universe. If you put more positive energy in the universe than negative energy, then you qualified to go to the good place. And as I thought about that, I just thought, man, that, that is the belief system that fits best into our postmodern society. It's this idea that, you know what, um, there isn't really this these traditional heaven and hells, it's more a good place and a bad place. There's, there's not as much a, a traditional God as there is just a positive force in the universe. And it's not about finding the one way, it's just a matter of, did you find the right way for you? Did you put enough positive energy into the universe? That's what it's really about. We live in a place where relativism rules. And so what's right for you might not be 
right for me, but in the end, as long as it's right for you, all roads kind of lead to the same place. But what Jesus says is, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a strong claim. And we have to wrestle with claims like this. My brother is a part of an apologetics ministry in Dallas, which means he, he spends time defending the faith. And uh, he, he just sent me this email conversation he had with a guy who, in his own words, had deconverted from Christianity. And here was a guy who just could not get on board with the fact that God would create human beings to fail and then punish them for not believing in him. And so this guy experienced enough pain in his own life, and as he began to wrestle with things, he stepped off the course and walked away from Jesus. Now, in my opinion, this Bible has very soul-satisfying answers for this guy's questions, but what you need to realize is there's going to be these different intersections in your life where, where someone gets a hold of your ear, whether it's a, whether it's a friend or a or a professor, or an author, or a host of a TV show, someone is going to get your ear. And there's going to be moments where you deal with doubt, and you begin to question if what you have believed is actually true. And in those moments, you're going to have to answer a question, do you want to go away as well? The third reason that people step off the course and walk away from Jesus is because they become convinced that Jesus is stealing life instead of giving it. Let me show you uh, why Jesus' sermon just tanked. Okay, watch this. Verse 51, here's what he says. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Can I get an amen? That's a good word, Jesus. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, what in the world? Can you imagine this? Can you imagine what his, uh, what his 12 friends are thinking? They start hearing Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I can only imagine they're like, Jesus, what is, you are losing it, man. Like, go back to the whole feeding people with fish and bread. Like, just take a break. Go back to, why don't you multiply some more food and, and feed some people? But you seem to be, like, some screws are coming loose. Jesus, maybe, maybe you need a nap. <laughs> eat my flesh, drink my blood. What you have to realize is Jesus is, is not speaking literally here. 
And hopefully that goes without saying, but Jesus is not talking literally here. What he's saying is actually really beautiful. And it's very important. What Jesus is, is telling us is how to personalize what he would accomplish on the cross. That's what he's telling his audience. He's telling his audience how to personalize what he would do on the cross. See, what we all have to realize is that our sin, our imperfection, deserves punishment from God. It does. It deserves death. But what Jesus did was he left heaven and came to earth and he voluntarily got up on a cross and on that cross his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. When Jesus died on the cross, that was him making payment to God for all of our sins. When Jesus rose on the third day, that was God the Father's declaration, I accept Jesus' payment for all of your sin. That's what was happening on the cross. So when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, what he's saying is, this is what it looks like to personalize what he will accomplish. This is how we say, Jesus, my sin became your sin. My punishment became your punishment. My penalty of death became your penalty of death. Now your victory over sin counts as my victory for sin. That's what he's telling people. He's telling people how to personalize what he would do. And now the truth for us this morning is personalizing what he has already done. Have you ever personalized what Jesus accomplished on the cross? It, there's a big difference between knowing about what Jesus did on the cross and personalizing what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus is speaking words that are meant to give life, but look at how the people respond. In verse 60, it says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That word hard in the Greek, it's the idea of being harsh. They're saying, Jesus, what you're saying is very harsh. Why would they say that? It's because a Jewish audience would have found it highly offensive for someone to say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They were forbidden from drinking blood. They were forbidden from eating meat that still had blood in it. And now Jesus shows up and says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they take him literally. And so it's highly offensive. Do you see what's happening right here? Jesus is speaking words that are meant to give life. And they interpret them as words that are meant to steal life. Anytime that happens. You're going to have to answer a question. Do you want to go away as well? You know, God's word in regard to marriage, Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And those words are meant to, they're meant to give life. It's this idea of God making two people one, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. But if you find yourself in a place where you feel as if you've fallen out of love and, and you begin to believe that happiness is, is ultimate and you're not happy and so if you want to be happy, the best thing for you to do is to get out of your marriage then when you hear Jesus' words it could appear that his words will steal life not give it and in that moment you're going to have to answer a question, do you want to go away as well? You know what Jesus says, whoever wants to find his life must lose it. And those words are meant to give life because you've been created by Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is, is the only one who truly knows what will make you 
fully alive. If you want to be fully alive, it's found in a completely surrendered relationship with Jesus. But man, when you begin to look around and and you see people compartmentalizing Jesus, and it, and it looks like there's more life to be found in cutting corners at work instead of living with character and integrity, and it looks like there's more, found, more life to be found in making money and success ultimate as opposed to making Jesus ultimate. And when it looks like there's more life to be found in, in cheating on your spouse or going outside of your marriage, or if you're single, walking in pr- promiscuous relationships, if it seems that there's more life there, then it would imagine it, it could appear that Jesus' words are stealing life, not giving it. And in those moments, you're gonna have to answer a question: do you want to go away as well? See, these are the reasons why people step off the course and walk away from Jesus. Is because Jesus doesn't give them what they think they need most. Jesus makes claims that are hard to get on board with. Jesus' words appear to steal life instead of give it. You will come to these intersections, and at these uncomfortable, awkward, painful intersections, you're going to be prompted to answer a question, do you want to go away as well? My hope is that your response would be the same as the disciples. As they see the multitudes walk away, and Jesus asks them, do you want to go away as well? Here's how they respond. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, Jesus, you're not giving us what we think we need most. Yeah, Jesus, you're saying some things that are hard to get on board with. Yeah, it would appear, Jesus, that there's times where your words are stealing life, not giving it, but Jesus, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. A cross-country race in high school is 3.1 miles. It's a a 5K. Let me just tell you how a race goes. The mile one is always the easiest mile. It's always the easiest mile because the gun goes off and and everyone takes off at an all-out sprint and you are just packed full of adrenaline in that moment and so you're surrounded by people and you just kind of get caught up in the rush, caught up in the flow and you're just, your legs are moving without you even having to think about it. You are just being propelled forward by your adrenaline and the people around you but then you hit mile two. And at mile two, the race begins to kind of spread out. And if you're really unlucky, you'll find yourself in no man's land where you're running completely by yourself. And the people ahead of you are too far ahead to catch up to them. The people behind you are too far behind. It's not worth it to slow down, to have people to run with. You're just in no man's land. And all you can do is think. Like that's when the pain sets in. That's when side cramps come. And that's when you begin to think, why did I ever choose to do this? But then mile three comes. And as you hit mile three, you reach a point on the course where there's more people lining the sidelines. And there's people who know your name. And so you begin to hear people cheering for you, calling your name, telling you to keep 
going. And then you begin to see that the finish line is in sight. And when you see that the finish line is in sight and you hear your name being called, what it does is it unlocks these reserve tanks of energy that you didn't even know that you had. And so you begin to pump your arms. You begin to lift your knees. You begin to look up and you move faster than you ever thought that you could go. You're propelled forward and you cross that finish line and you might collapse on the ground. You might be completely out of gas. You might be completely dead, but the feeling of finishing is glorious. And the reason that I tell you that is because the Christian life is very similar to a race like that. Man, there's going to be several mile ones in your life where where walking with Jesus is easy. You come to church and it just feels right. You go to a conference and things are clicking. You read a book and it just makes sense. Walking with Jesus just makes sense. It's good. It's enjoyable. You're moving. It doesn't take a lot of effort. It just works. But then you need to know you're going to hit some mile twos. And it's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be painful at times. And there will be moments where doubt sets in and you're going to begin to question, why did I ever follow Jesus in the first place? But I'm here to tell you this morning that mile three is coming. I'm here this morning to just cheer you on saying, keep going, look up. The finish line is coming, so keep running. Don't give up, press on, question well, look to Jesus, press forward. Run your race because a day is coming where you're going to cross that finish line. You will enter the presence of God. You will behold Jesus face to face and you will experience this eternal soul satisfying joy because of his beauty for all of eternity. And in that moment, you will fully realize it was worth it. There's going to be these times in your life where you're going to be prompted to answer the question, do you want to go away as well? In those moments, my hope is that your response would echo the response of the disciples. Jesus, to whom shall we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for anyone in here this morning who doesn't have a relationship with you. Maybe they know about what you did on the cross, but they've never personalized it. I pray that this morning they would allow their sin to be your sin, that they would allow your death to be their death, and that they would allow your victory to become their victory through faith and faith alone in who you are and what you've done for them, Lord. I pray for those in here who just feel like they're hanging by a thread. They're wondering if it's all worth it. Doubt has set in, God. Thanks that you had them here this morning for a reason. Lord, we need you. This, this life is tough. This race can be wearisome. But I thank you that the finish line is coming. And when we see you face to face, there will be no question in our mind whether or not it was worth it. And so, Lord, we love you. We want to finish this race well. We need you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Timothy Atik. Would you give him a hand? Thank you.